Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. Greetings, my good people. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, as we're less than two months away from 2021 on the eve of Election Day, and one of the biggest elections that we could ever imagine is forthcoming tomorrow. But you've come by to listen to some sports, and I'm going to give you an earful and then some here on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 162 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, even Amazon Music. If you can do that, I would greatly appreciate it. It is a Monday, November the 2nd, in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What's expected on this podcast is as follows. What a week for the Clemson Tigers and Trevor Lawrence. With all the talk about him going pro and him saying who knows, and then him coming down with COVID, Clemson barely Squeaking by Boston College on Saturday. But the big question is, what is going to happen moving forward as Notre Dame looms large as one of the biggest college football games this year? Not only are we going to touch on that, but we're also going to talk about why I think he should go into the NFL draft, be drafted number one overall, and if the Jets happen to be the team, he needs to welcome them with open arms. I'll explain why later on. Major League Baseball, what can we say about Game 6? I know it's been almost a week since that Dreaded decision by Kevin Cash pulling Blake Snell out of the game. I'll rehash a little bit of that. The Justin Turner aftermath with him getting COVID and how that whole thing unfolded. And it's official Met fan, Steve Cohen, is now our owner. I know I've touched on that weeks ago, but now that it's official, just a couple of words on that, which I'll share later on. In the NBA, you've had a lot of transactions going on. Daryl Morey going to the Philadelphia 76ers to become the GM. Also, Mike D'Antoni joining the staff on the Brooklyn Nets. Get into all that. Plus my hero and zero of the week. But to start us off, which looked like a very dreadful and deplorable week eight of games in the NFL, minus the Pittsburgh-Baltimore game, which you know I'm going to get into later on. But due to the way the schedule has panned out, and a lot of these weeks have been ho-hum, and yes, you've had some excitement in some games, but yesterday you actually had a competitive slate when it comes to everything that happened in the National Football League. But between that, Also, a lot of activity with player personnel off the field as the deadline is tomorrow, I believe 4 o'clock, where a lot of teams are going to look to make some moves here. Even in a COVID world, teams that are looking to not only become contenders from the pretenders or teams that are looking to fortify positions, whether you're the aforementioned Pittsburgh Steelers, as they did with the inside linebacker position, A.V. Williamson, so I'll talk about that later on. But the NFL took a little bit of a leap yesterday with certain teams, certain games, and you wonder what the outlook is going to be from here on out. Because if you listen to the podcast last week, the only sport that we have to chew on is football. So whether it's all day Sunday, Monday night, even Thursday night, that's all you're going to look forward to because with the college football season, even 
with it starting to perk up a little bit and with the Pac-12 ushering in their college football schedule this coming weekend, the only thing everybody in the sports world is looking to put the spotlight on right now is the National Football League. So let's get right to it. Our winners and losers for week number eight. I'll start off with the winners, and the first team that comes to mind are the Indianapolis Colts. Now, the Colts, we all know, lost that brutal game in week one to Jacksonville. People could say, all right, it was Detroit, no big deal. The Lions are pathetic. They had to get a miracle win the week before in Atlanta, thanks to Todd Gurley. But with the way the Colts have been structured this year, bringing in Phillip Rivers for the one year at $25 million, having their top running back out for the season in Marlon Mack, and Phillip Rivers have pretty much had to do this with smoke and mirrors on the offensive side. Jonathan Taylor's been nicked up, and... T.Y. Hilton also left the game with an injury. So for the Colts to pretty much hang in there, and now even their record with the Tennessee Titans at 5-2 and two atop the AFC South is indicative of not only the head coach Frank Wright, but just the way the team has been constructed here to maybe not be a threat in the AFC, but can cast their name in the ballot as far as them trying to make a push and maybe be a sleeper or even a dark horse in a conference that, as we all know, very top-heavy with Kansas City, Pittsburgh, and you want to throw in Baltimore, that's fine. But the Colts certainly stake their claim, winning a game on the road. I understand it's an inferior opponent, but you can't discount what they've done here at 5-2. and two. And it even mirrors last year, if you recall. They were 5-2 and two at this point, going into Week 8 against Pittsburgh, and then their season went into a tailspin. Let's see if that happens this time around, knowing that they have a quarterback at the helm, not Jacoby Brissett, but the veteran Phillip Rivers, who has played pretty well. So kudos to the Colts and what they did yesterday to get themselves even in the division with the Titans. My second winner is the Las Vegas Raiders. And again, you want to call the Browns an inferior opponent or Paper Tiger at 5-2 and two coming into this game? Okay, you could say so. But the Raiders, who have had some tough losses, The Raiders, who have been a team that started out fast at 2-0 and then all of a sudden started to spiral a little bit out of control, losing in New England. They had that big win in Kansas City, but then got blown out last week at home against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So here to go on the road, the weather conditions certainly weren't favorable for the Raiders, but they went in there and played a pretty ugly game against a team that doesn't play pretty at all in the Browns, but they came out with a victory. And with the way the Playoffs are going to be positioned this year. Remember, there are seven playoff teams. The Raiders, although they do have a tiebreaker head-to-head with Kansas City, but are still two games back as of right now. But that was a big win for them to go on the road against a team that is well over 500 and the Browns. And they did what they had to do, although wasn't anything to write home about as far as the stat sheet, a 16-6 victory. But you take wins however you could get them in this league. And kudos to the Raiders for pulling out a victory and keeping themselves above 500 and in the race for a playoff spot early on as we approach the halfway point here in this NFL season. As far as my losers go, and I got a few of them for this week, the first one is the Green Bay Packers. Now, the Vikings, we know that the division games are always tricky, whether you're hosting or on the road, but the Vikings are a team at 1-5, pretty much have one foot in the proverbial grave for their NFL season here this year. But with Dalvin Cook coming in there and running roughshod against that Packer defense, and it's not as if Aaron Rodgers had a poor game, but defensively, they're a team that you always have to question and wonder about. Yes, can they light up the scoreboard when everything is going right? Absolutely. And I understand they didn't have Aaron Jones in the game, but for the Packers to lay an egg the way they did, 
The score was 28-22, but it wasn't anything close to what the score indicated. And with Cook having a field day all over Lambeau Field yesterday, that was just a pathetic performance on their defense. And have definitely taken a couple steps back, not only in the NFC North, but in the NFC overall. Just a bad performance by Green Bay yesterday, no matter how you slice it. And then they have a short week as they have to go to San Francisco on Thursday. So they're going to have to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and get themselves back to work because even with San Francisco losing yesterday to Seattle and they're going to be playing for their football lives this coming week, just a ominous and very questionable performance there by Green Bay at home against the Vikings. My second loser are the Los Angeles Rams. And we understand that they've had to travel like no other team this year. I guess Seattle's the other team that has traveled a lot from east to west this year. But with the Rams already playing in Buffalo, played in Philadelphia, played in Washington, now had to travel to South Florida after a bye and put up that type of effort yesterday to a Dolphin team that had Tua Tagovailoa be the starter during their bye week. And Tagovailoa didn't really do much in the game. He had 22 passes, I believe completed 12 of them, and then only threw for 93 yards. He did get his first NFL touchdown. But with Jalen Ramsey leaving the game after the first defensive series because of an illness, still don't know what that's about. And for Jared Goff to have the game that he had, turning the ball over left and right, having fumble recoveries returned for touchdowns, as well as a punt return by Jakeem Grant for a touchdown. Uh, These guys were still in the hotel, or who knows, maybe they were out partying in South Beach considering the Rams only go there once every eight years. So you got to wonder what was the Rams' MO yesterday because they did not show up and the Dolphins did not do anything on offense pretty much other than a series or two. So you wonder what's going to happen with the Rams as this NFC West is starting to shape up here week by week with all the competitive teams. We talked about San Francisco. Arizona had a bye, and they actually play Miami next week. So you got to wonder and question what's happening with Sean McVay and company here as they're eight games into their season, and especially with their quarterback, Jared Goff, who one week could look like the number one pick that he was, and other weeks he looks like he's a guy that was drafted in the seventh round. And then my last loser yesterday... I get that the Tennessee Titans had a tough loss against Pittsburgh the week before. But what happened yesterday in Cincinnati, and give the Bengals credit, Joe Burrow has played well this rookie season. You would think it's going to be between him and Justin Herbert to be the offensive rookie of the year. But right now, you have to look at Burrow and what they've done. They've been competitive in all their games. Yesterday, they went in there and certainly stared down that Titan defense. And again, the Titan defense isn't anything to really write home about. But Tannehill took a couple steps back. Derrick Henry did get... 100 yards rushing in the game. But for Tennessee to be in a slumber for four quarters in Cincinnati, maybe they took their opponent lightly. Maybe they thought that they could go in there just based on what they've done so far this year and just steamroll the Bengals, but that was not the case. Now Mike Vrabel and company have to go back to the drawing board, starting off 5-0, and lost their last two, and now with the Colts, as I mentioned before, tying them for first place in the AFC South, and they have not played each other yet this year. In fact, i got to look at the schedule. I believe maybe their first game and their first matchup could be a Thursday night, maybe in the next week or two, but I'll check that before I finish with the NFL segment. But here we are, now week eight with all these teams, and now you could look at with baseball season over, and with Thanksgiving now just three and a half weeks away, we could start to take shape of what this NFL season is going to look like. And as I said at the top, You had a lot of competitive games yesterday, even though you didn't have the sexy matchups. Of course, the Steelers, we'll get to that later on. You know, I always like to save them for last, and I could have used them as a winner of the week only because that was a game 
I'm not going to say they had no business winning, but when you look at the numbers and you look at the stats and how everything unfolded, you wonder how in the hell did they win that game. And it was very impressive and very gutty and gritty on that regard if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan like myself. But I'll talk about them later on. When we look at the schedule over the weekend, because i got to go back to Thursday night with the Falcons and Carolina Panthers, no big significance. We know Atlanta's lost all these brutal games, and Carolina, even under first-year coach Matt Rule, did not play well in this game. Although it was a one-score game, but you wouldn't have thought if you watched it from start to finish. So Atlanta was able to be victorious at least for one night and not have to worry about being either blown out or having to blow another big lead. So Carolina, who's starting to lose a little bit of their grip as far as making some hay in the NFC, and with Christian McCaffrey out, who knows if he's going to be back this week. It's certainly not looking good for the Panthers here in 2020. Now as we look at the games from yesterday, it could be the end for the New England Patriots. Who would have thought with Bill Belichick being at the helm, and even with no Tom Brady, with the AFC East that's looking at the start of the year wide open, and how could you not bet against the Patriots knowing that Buffalo hasn't done anything, although they made the postseason last year and did win 11 games, but still, could you trust them 100%? No. We know about the Dolphins and their regime and everything that transpired in the offseason, drafting Tua and making some strides at the end of last year, but you didn't expect them to make any noise in the AFC East. And then sadly, the Jets are the Jets. But with yesterday's game, which was a crucial game for New England, if they were going to make any type of stance on their season, and they came that close, knowing that they had trail by three, two-minute warning, they're going into Buffalo Bill territory. And the first thing I thought about was, if I'm Bill Belichick, I'm going for the win. And we know how aggressive he could be. And based on some of the play calling that you saw there, a lot of runs on that final drive. But the last run, unfortunately, ended up with a fumble from Cam Newton. They're deep in Bill territory. And right, they could have settled for a field goal. And even though at the time when he fumbled, I believe it was at the Bill, I want to say maybe 27, 28-yard line. But they at least could have gone in for a tie. And again, I would have tried to go in for the winning score because you definitely don't have to deal with overtime and who knows if you end up with a tie, and we know that the NFL in overtime in this day and age, you're going to see more ties because of the shortness of overtime. But that was a tough loss for the Patriots yesterday. Four in a row that they've lost now, and you have to go back probably until maybe even the 90s because I know in 2002 they lost three games in a row. That was the season where they were 9-7, and seven, the year after they won their first Super Bowl here during this 20-year run. But the Patriots may not be heard from Again this year, they may have their moments, but at 2-5, and five, you would think that there's no way that they're going to make a challenge in that division or even try to sneak in at a 7-seed in the AFC. And for Buffalo, that was not an impressive game, to say the least. You have to look at what they've done here up until this point and say, okay, 6-2, and two, obviously that's how you want to play the first half to where now your second half, you could maybe be a carbon copy of the first eight games, can they go 12-4? and four? Quite possibly in this division. They've already beaten Miami. They've beaten the Jets twice. They still have another meeting with both of those teams, New England and Miami. So they certainly have a stranglehold on the division right now. But even after these eight games, you still wonder what this Buffalo Bill team is as far as their identity is concerned. Because me, at the start of the year, I thought it was going to be mostly about their defense. And their defense hasn't really been top-notch that a lot of people, including myself, thought they would be. 
And their offense has been sporadic. It's sputtered at times. Yes, against the bad teams, it could certainly run up the score, as we've seen with the Dolphins and Jets early on. And the Dolphins was week two, so the Dolphins have been much better since then. But let me see this against some better opponents, some bigger quality, better quality. And we know New England is always going to be a tough out no matter what, even if you have Jared Stidham at quarterback because of the pedigree that Bill Belichick has carried throughout his tenure there. But the Bills still have a lot to prove despite 6-2. and two, And I know a lot of the Bills Mafia is jumping up and down knowing that they finally, hey, we beat the Patriots finally after all this time. But again, we're just halfway through a season. There's still plenty of time to go. And let's see what Buffalo could do from here on out to close out their season and see what kind of position they get into January and maybe to the Super Bowl in February. All right, as we go through it, let me see if I could trim a little bit of the fat here because, like I said, a lot of competitive games yesterday. But one game we could trim the fat on is the Jets playing the Chiefs yesterday, 35-9. to Jets actually were competitive in the first half, you could believe it. But there's no way they could slow down that runaway train that's Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, now even Le'Veon Bell, who did not have a big game. I think he only rushed for three yards or whatever it was, but he did have a few catches from the backfield, but didn't really make any type of imprint on the game. But when you have number 15, who chances are could be your MVP this league, I know people in Pacific Northwest would think otherwise, and Russell Wilson, and rightfully so, but the KC Chiefs just cruised to a 35-9 victory, and now you've got to wonder what's going to happen with the Jets here as the deadline is tomorrow, how many pieces they're going to let go of. As I mentioned earlier, Avery Williamson, who was a linebacker there, was traded to Pittsburgh yesterday for, I believe, a pick next year. I forgot what round. I think maybe third round. No, I think it was a fifth-round pick, and they're getting their seventh round back. So the Jets, you kind of wonder what they're going to do here as far as personnel goes to revamp and pretty much restructure this whole team from the inside out. Do I even get into last night's Dallas-Philadelphia game? Now, I watched bits and pieces of it. I couldn't watch. This was just, it was just sore on the eyes. And no offense to Cowboy quarterback Ben DiNucci, but you can't watch terrible quarterback play. I saw it last year with the Steelers there toward the end, and I know I'm making it about the Steelers a lot throughout the course of the start of this podcast. So forgive me, but when you watch terrible quarterback play and it's on a national TV Sunday night game, I'm sorry. We understand what the Cowboys bring to at the NFL, to America, to ratings, to the sets, but this team is now 2-6. and six. They cannot be in primetime anymore for the rest of this year. I'm sorry. And even though they may be a game and a half behind the Eagles in the division, and I know the Eagles have that tie, so it makes it even trickier, but uh-uh. you're going to have the Cowboys next Sunday for the world to see in the 425 slot against Pittsburgh. You're going to have them on Thanksgiving, which they have every year, and that's rightfully so. Understand, they have a Thursday night game against Baltimore, which you have to wonder, they can't flex out of that game, so that's going to be another snooze fest in the first week of December. And whatever the Sunday night game that they may have on the schedule, I believe San Francisco later on in the year, they're going to have to scrap that game. There's no way. I'm sorry. Unless Troy Aikman is coming back as quarterback, there's you cannot show the Cowboys from here on out. And I would think a lot of football fans, whether they love the Cowboys, hate the Cowboys, but let's be real about it, I've had enough of seeing them in primetime. So... That game, 23-9. All right, the Eagles, it's going to be like last year all over again. They may be 7-8-1 to win the division or 8-7-1, and and they'll probably be sacrificial lambs in the first round as they were last year to the Seahawks. Speaking of Russell Wilson, you had the game yesterday where he threw for four touchdowns. The game wasn't close. They were up 27-7 and 30-14 before cruising to a 37-27 victory. 
Jimmy Garoppolo had to leave the game due to his injury with his ankle. And you wonder what's going to happen with San Francisco from here on out as they host Green Bay this week, which is going to be an enormous game for them because San Francisco cannot afford to lose many more games here. We know that the West is very competitive. And who knows, maybe if they get on some sort of run here, they could get into the postseason through the back door. But they certainly cannot put up any more performances the way they did yesterday against a division opponent. I understand on the road, and even with the week before beating New England and cross-country, they still had some days to recover. And the flight from San Francisco to Seattle is a piece of cake. So no excuses there for the Niners. But they lose to the top-seeded Seahawks there, 37-27. As we move on here, the game in Chicago between New Orleans and the Bears... Weird enough that a lot of games yesterday were marred by certain incidents where there was ejections, as we saw in that game yesterday, with Javon Wims. What he did was just deplorable. And I get that the cornerback for the Saints got in the face of one of the Bears wide receivers earlier, but for him to just sucker punch him, and that's what it was, for Wims to just pretty much pick on him, sucker punch him, and slap him twice, that was as deplorable as you could ever see on a football field, and We understand they want to have that little hockey mentality, but they don't have skates and they don't drop gloves, and which I would love if that's the case. But put that aside, for them to play the way they did in that first half, the Bears, and even though they had a lead and the Saints came marching back, they took a 10-point lead late, and you knew that even with everything that happened in the game, Matt Nagy trying to rally the troops and the Bears, who I've said they've been a paper tiger all along. We understand they have a very good defense, but their offense... Definitely sputters from time to time. And even though Nick Foles has a lot of magic in that right arm or somewhere beneath his chest and in between his ears, but it wasn't enough, even though they came from behind to tie the game, but they ended up losing in overtime. And now the Bears, who could have made up some ground yesterday against the Packers. Remember, they those two teams haven't played each other just yet. But a tough loss at home for them. They're now 5-3. and three, And the Saints, who have a big matchup against the Buccaneers this coming Sunday night, we'll keep pace with them at least for another week, and Tampa plays the Giants tonight, which you think would be just a cakewalk for the Buccaneers, but the Saints were able to hang on and win that game at Soldier Field to keep themselves, even without Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, and some of the key players on that team, but they do have Alvin Kamara, who was an enormous part of that offense, and Jared Cook, who had a touchdown after a ball that was thrown behind them there in the first half. But when you have a guy like Kamara, who is a multi-purpose threat on the field, as long as he stays healthy, and we all know he has his problems when it comes to health, that's going to go a long way for the Saints, and we're going to see them showcase Sunday night down in Tampa, which will be pretty much for the division. Because New Orleans beat Tampa, member week one, and they're going to want to keep pace, not only with the Buccaneers, but if they can get this win coming Sunday night, we'll certainly put them in a pole position for not only first place, but with a tiebreaker, with the Buccaneers, but that's for down the road. Other games from yesterday, what about the Los Angeles Chargers who always find these ways to lose games? And what could you say? They had big leads in the game, a 21-point fourth quarter by the Broncos, including the last play of the game where Drew Locke, who at halftime had a rah-rah Newt Rockney-type moment where he had to rally the troops. He felt as if this team couldn't go out like that. And for Drew Locke to have that performance and what he did there in the fourth quarter to rally his team. Now remember, this team in the third quarter were down 24-3 to and 27-17 late. 
So for Locke to have three touchdown passes in the fourth quarter, including the last pass to K.J. Hamler as time expired, Broncos, I know they're not going to be probably heard from this year in the AFC, but for them to have any type of hope and for them to maybe try to squeak in or sneak in the AFC playoff picture, that game could go a long way as they started off 4-3, and three, they won three of the last four, and with Locke back at quarterback, who knows? It is the NFL. You never know what could happen. They play in a division. All right, they have the Raiders who have been competitive and obviously the Chiefs, but if they're going to be on the fringe as far as making the postseason, this game could be the one that they'll circle as they were down big and they came back late, 31-30, and if you're the Chargers and Anthony Lynn, how many more ways are you going to invent to lose games? They do not have the heart and this goes back years. They can't pull these games out of the fire. The only game that I could think of was when that Thursday night game in Kansas City a few years back when they won the game on a two-point conversion as pretty much time expired. That's the only time I can remember the Chargers winning a game that they shouldn't have won, and instead, they always find games where they should win, but they always lose. And yesterday was just another in a laundry list of games that the Chargers have blown late and that one is just inexcusable. There's no if ands, what's, maybe's about it. And if you're Anthony Lynn, he says you got to figure it out. Well, you're going to have to figure it out fast because this could mean your job. Even with Herbert performing well, Herbert, I believe, threw for what? That 485 yards as a team, 278 yards. I know there was a big pick there in that second half, which got the Broncos going. But you got to figure out a way to win these games, no matter what the score, whether you're up by five scores, two scores, or even late, just one score behind. And just a pathetic performance there by their defense late in that game for them to lose. All right, now let's get to it. To recap the game of the day yesterday, and if the first series was any indication of what it was about to be for the Steelers and Ravens, where Lamar Jackson threw a pick to Robert Spillane, who took it to the house 33 yards. First time ever he's thrown a pick six, by the way. But that was just the beginning of turns of events that you could not even believe. But then again, if you watch football and you know about the Steeler-Raven rivalry, which by far is the best rivalry in football, then you knew that this was going to be a heart-stopping type of game, and that's what it was, as advertised. And it's just too bad it wasn't on primetime. But we will get to see them Thanksgiving evening, 8-20, Baltimore-Pittsburgh in about three and a half weeks. But the game yesterday for the Steelers, their offense was not pathetic in the first half. It was non-existent. 64 yards, they did nothing in the air, nothing on the ground. Thankfully that they were still within striking range at 17-7 where even with a 10-point lead and the way the Baltimore Ravens play, that is in their favor because it's all downhill for them when it comes to their rushing attack, which was dominant to say the least. 265 yards on the ground. They also had the time of possession considering they had all those yards on the ground. But the killer for the Baltimore Ravens, simply put, was the quarterback. He turned the ball over four times. He had a turnover at 7-7 as they were pretty much on the doorstep ready to punch it in. But he was stripped, sacked by Dupree. Ball was on the ground. Steelers recovered. Then he had that awful interception to start off the second half for the Ravens as far as their series is concerned. Because the Steelers had the ball to start off the second half. They got a first down, then went three and out, punted. The Ravens then had a screen pass where Jackson was trying to get a ball to a running back, or I believe it was to a tight end out in the flat. He floated one where Alex Highsmith picked it off, 
And that pretty much set the tone for the rest of the game for the Steelers offensively. Two plays after that, Eric Ebron was in the end zone for a touchdown, made it 17-14. On the next possession, the Steelers then marched down the field. They were able to punch it in with a touchdown by James Conner to make it 21-17. After a defensive stop there by the Steelers and getting the ball back, they didn't do anything on that next drive. That's when the Ravens took over to where they marched down the field, touchdown to the end zone for John Brown, 24-21. And that's when I thought right then and there, if the Steelers don't score on this next possession, then it looks like the Ravens are just going to run out the clock and away we go. As it was... The Steelers did get the ball. They were two highlights on the drive where they got two personal fouls. One was a face mask on a third down, a key play there on a pass to Ray Ray McLeod. And then later on, a pass interference on Marlon Humphrey to Chase Claypool, which set up the touchdown to Claypool with about seven and a half minutes to go, 28-24, and then it was nail-biting time for the Steelers. The Ravens then marched down the field, all on running plays to the point where they were in the red zone, Came down to a fourth and three. Isaiah Bugs, who had to step in for Tyson Alualu, who was hurt during the game. What a performance there by Bugs, who came in there and got the stop on Lamar Jackson. He even fumbled the ball in the process, but it didn't matter. It did count as a fumble in the stat sheet, but it was a turnover on downs. So the Steelers then tried to get one first down to ice the game. They couldn't do that. They had to punt the ball. So now the Ravens are coming back downfield. More running plays. They had a fourth and two where they got a pass over the middle to a wide open Willie Sneed, which had me pulling my hair out of my head. And then on the game's final play where Lamar Jackson had to throw it into the end zone and it was broken up by Minka Fitzpatrick. Now, a lot of people are going to think, hey, where's pass interference? Hey, where's a lead-in helmet-to-helmet type play as Willie Sneed went flying? But if you look at the replay from the end zone, Minka Fitzpatrick was going for the ball. It just happened to be coincidental bang-bang contact on that play. Sneed went flying, so did Fitzpatrick, and the Steelers get out of there with a 28-24 victory. And again, you look at the numbers, the rushing numbers, even the offensive numbers. The Ravens had 447 yards of total offense in the game, and the Steelers had about 240, or what was it, 220 if I get the stats right? So when you look at the stat sheet and you say to yourself, how the hell did the Ravens lose this game? It's the turnovers. And it's very rare for a team to outrush another team by over 200-something yards to lose. I think it's the first time it's happened in over 30 years. And then on top of that, I said this two weeks ago, if the Steelers were to win in Tennessee and in Baltimore during this three-game stretch on the road where now they go to Dallas next week, of course, I'd take these first two games. Now, you don't want to lose to Dallas considering how Poor they've been playing, and of course, who's that quarterback, etc. But if, even if they lose to Dallas next week, and that would be embarrassing, but you want to win these two games because now you have a leg up on both of these teams when it comes to tiebreaker. The Chiefs, who have not had their bye yet, but you still keep pace with them, even if you happen to lose next week or whatever it may be. But you're always a game ahead of them right now in the standings as they're six and one. And what could you say about that performance? That was as gutty, as gritty, as much heart as this team has showed, and it all starts with the quarterback. I'll never forget what he said years ago in an interview where he said that games won in the NFL, they're never pretty, and not only that, it's those games where you don't want to be there, it's the games where it's physical, it's muddy, considering the conditions yesterday, it was overcast and a little bit of rain. Those are the games that you got to gut out, and Ben Roethlisberger guts those games out, and he was Pathetic in the first half. 4 for 10, 24 yards, but he finished up 17 for 22. I know the stat line doesn't look great at the end. He only threw for 182 yards, 
But when you need to play from that man, he delivers more often than not. And yesterday was indicative of that. And that's why I get that you have better quarterbacks than him as far as talent. I get that you have more prolific quarterbacks when it comes to numbers, stats, whatever, that are in the league right now. But there is no quarterback in the NFL that has as much heart as that guy does. And I know people are probably going to drive off the road if you're driving or hopefully you don't fall off the treadmill when you're saying that. I'm not saying that he's the best quarterback in the league. I'm not saying that he deserves to be MVP, none of that. But when it comes to what's in that chest of his, there's no one better. Uh, think about it. Go through the list. I know Brady is tough. I know there are other quarterbacks, Russell Wilson, but Roethlisberger at his age and what he's done throughout his career and to come back from the elbow time and time again. And I get it. I have the pom-poms out for him, but I'm just being not only honest, but it's a fair assessment. The guy, for whatever the reason, in these type of games, he just does whatever it takes to win a game. And he did exactly that. As bad as he was in the first half, and he was terrible. But look what he did in the second half and pulled his team out of the fire to win a game. That's a guy I want on my team every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Now, as we take a look ahead to next week, we talked about Green Bay-San Francisco. That's a huge game, as we know, for both teams, even for Green Bay, because just to get the taste out of that loss from yesterday against the Vikings, let's see if they can bounce back in San Francisco, which will be a little bit of a revenge game considering the way they performed in the NFC Championship game last year against the Niners, but it'll be a totally different totally different scenario. Obviously, it's not for an NFC Championship, A and B. You're not going to probably have Garoppolo be under center, although Nick Mullins did have, he had a very good game, 18 for 25 with two touchdowns, but it's definitely going to have a different dynamic than it would normally if Garoppolo was playing or, obviously, when the stakes are as high as they were this past January. Well, looking ahead... The one game that's interesting here as I look at is Baltimore and Indianapolis. Now, let me see Indianapolis back up yesterday's victory with another win at home against the Ravens because, yes, we talked about it. The Lions, they're not world beaters. They're not a team that anybody's going to be shaking in the boots over. So let's see if they could produce a carbon copy of what they did yesterday. Maybe not to the tune of 41 points and all the yards and everything that they accumulated against the Lions, but they're at home, and let's see if they could be competitive. This is also going to be a bounce-back game for Lamar Jackson and also for the Ravens. So that's a a very low-key, high-profile game at 1 o'clock there on Sunday because a lot of the other games that you have, Seattle at Buffalo, when you look at it from a record standpoint, that's that's a good game. But a lot of the 1 o'clock games are just, what could you say, Denver and Atlanta. I guess Chicago-Tennessee is a B game. Again, when you look at those two teams, it's not as if you're going to be running to the set to say, hey, what's happening in that Bear-Titan game? But because they have winning records and they're coming off of losses, that could be a game that a lot of people are going to look at as as far as being a competitive game or one to keep an eye on. Not for me personally, but still. Carolina at Kansas City, Detroit at Minnesota, the Giants at Washington, Houston at Jacksonville, Vegas at the Chargers, Miami, Arizona, eh. Not a great slate of games. We talked about Pittsburgh-Dallas, New Orleans and Tampa, of course, and then your Monday night game next week. Woo! New England at the Jets. Think about this. New England at the Jets, where if I would have told you at the beginning of the year that this would be a matchup between 2-5 and 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 0-8, you would say, wait a second, it was this back in 1982 when both teams were that bad? Well, the Jets made it to 
the AFC title game that year, and that was in the strike season. But you get my drift. Nobody is going to be watching that game. And ooh, that, that is just as bad as a Monday night game you could get. And coming off the heels of tonight's game where Tampa and the Giants, man, that's uh, not good. All right, so let me quickly go through this uh, NFL trade deadline deal because we had a lot of transactions off the field. And it's weird because the NFL trade deadline, up until I would say the last three years, has always been one to come and go. Not a lot of people would look at the NFL trade deadline as a date to circle your calendar and say, oh, wait a minute, we got to keep our attention to what's going to happen as far as player movement in the NFL come the trade deadline. Because it's not the baseball deadline, as you'll see in MLB, because that's always a focal point of uh, pennant contending teams, teams that are looking to upgrade their rosters, pitching, a bat, whatever. The baseball trade deadline by far is the most scrutinized of all of them. And the NBA, to a lesser degree, it is, because it's usually somewhere around mid-February. NHL, eh, but not so much. But the NFL trade deadline, especially over the last couple of years, you've had a lot of transactions with teams. And just looking at the past week with the Cowboys, they traded Everson Griffin to Detroit. And they also let go of Dontari Poe because of weight issues. And there's also another implication of some other stuff that Jerry Jones had mentioned and did not want to get into. Dontari Poe was a guy who would kneel before the National Anthem. And we know Jerry Jones does not want to open up those can of worms as we've seen time and time again. That is something that he would avoid and not want to talk or discuss or even get remotely into when it comes to the Anthem. So he takes the high road on that. You also had Carlos Dunlap where in the game last week against the Cleveland Browns where the Browns came back and won in the final seconds. After the game... He voiced his displeasure of his role with the team and knowing that he's been a veteran and one of the longest tenured Bengals on the team. But after the game, he was just so distraught that he put his apartment on the market. I believe it was on Twitter or one of the social media sites. So just a few days later, they traded Dunlap to Seattle, which was a smart move. They got him out of there. Despite him being a veteran on that team, It was wise for Zach Taylor and company just to jettison him to a team where he's far away. He doesn't have to worry about him coming back to haunt his former club. So he goes to the Seahawks where the Seahawks, we all know they need reinforcements in the worst way on defense. And as I mentioned yesterday, the Steelers made a trade for Avery Williamson, which I found pretty surprising. Robert Spillane has done just an admirable job. Now, again, nobody's going to confuse him with Devin Bush, the first-round pick from last year. But at the same time, to have a guy like that who had played with the Jets and before that with the Tennessee Titans, a veteran guy, a stable force, and just by what I've seen and his response to going to Pittsburgh, he's ready to go chomping at the bit. So he'll be a welcome presence in that locker room, I'm sure. And you wonder what's going to happen here over the course of the next 24 hours as far as who's going to be coming and going in the NFL. What type of position that some of these teams, whether it's the Jets where Quinton Williams, who has increased his stock a little bit, but will the Jets be willing to part with their third overall pick from last year? What will the Cowboys do as they try to maybe shed a little payroll if they can? And you wonder about some of these other teams that are going to be not in the playoff mix. What's going to happen with them as far as maybe making some moves to try to procure some draft picks for next year or to get a headache off the team to that would need a change of scenery, a la Carlos Dunlap. So we'll certainly keep our eye on that over the course of the next 24 hours plus as the 
trade deadline happens to fall on the same day as election day. So something to pique our interest, especially in a world where we do not have much sports now because it's just going to be football wall-to-wall for the most part as we continue to march on here in the sports world and here on the j Rules Podcast. So now we go from the pro circuit to the college circuit. And what an interesting week if you're the Clemson Tigers. When you look at early this week where the quarterback Trevor Lawrence, who in an interview or press conference was asked about would he come out next year knowing that the Jets will be the most likely destination for him considering they have the worst record in the league right now. And even though there are a bunch of other teams that have one victory too. And if I could digress for a second, as preposterous as I heard that the reason why the Dolphins were starting Tua to go over lower is because they want to see what they have in him knowing that the Houston Texans in that big trade last year with Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills, where they got back their number one and number two picks for this year. And with the Texans right now, which is one win, one and six, and even though they're better from a talent perspective than what their record indicates, but for the Dolphins to just put that on the table. Now, I don't know if that's been rumored, reported, whatever, but if that's the case, I know Brian Flores, he probably has to shoot that down with the quickness. Because for them to put Tua in there, and he didn't do anything in the game yesterday, but just to put him in there to see what they have as a quarterback, just in case if they have the number one overall, if they could bring in Trevor Lawrence, uh, please. What does that say about Tua and what he's done this offseason? And granted, it's a COVID world, and you didn't really get to see a lot of him during training camp, etc. But that's just a bad optic, and you don't want to have that type of news coming out of your camp down in Miami if that's the case. But be that as it may, as far as Lawrence going pro and maybe the Jets being a destination... He just chalked it up as to who knows. And you could look at that many ways and break it down and we understand that that's going to be newsworthy, etc. But what else is the kid going to say? Yeah, I'm coming out. It doesn't matter. So on and so forth where he still has the rest of a college football season and a chance of winning another title. So you want him to be partially checked out knowing that the NFL is right on the horizon and just chuck the rest of this college football season aside? So to me, it's a non-story. We get who it is. We get his Trevor Lawrence, so on and so forth. But I will say this, before we even talk about the COVID stuff with him and their team and moving forward. If you're Trevor Lawrence, and he may not know Joe Namath from Joe Exotic, but the bottom line is this. If you see the Jets there at number one, and despite the fact that this organization has been inept pretty much since the year Joe Willie brought that guarantee and that Super Bowl trophy to Queens at the time, Shea Stadium. If you're Trevor Lawrence, and although you may shrug your shoulders and roll your eyes and think to yourself, oh, geez, the Jets. If you were to come here and be a part of this franchise. Now, granted, they need an overhaul as well. It starts with the owner. They need to chuck them. But we know that that's not going to be the case anytime soon. But let's just say for whatever the reason that the Johnsons, both Chris and Woody, wake up from their deep slumber to draft this kid and for them to bring in a coach that's not only going to develop this kid and to put some pieces around him. We get it's not going to be year one, year two, but hopefully by year three. That if you could get the right, I hate to use the word culture, and also the right coach, the right quarterback coach, offense coordinator, whomever it may be. If you get that guy in here, 
And if you're the GM, if it happens to be Joe Douglas, and so be it. But you try to sell this guy on one thing and one thing only. That if you're going to be the face of our franchise and you're going to be here for the next 10 years, if you win a Super Bowl here, you will be a conquering hero for the rest of your life. So don't do what John Elway did by not wanting to be drafted by the Baltimore Colts at the time in 1983. Or if you're Eli Manning and you did not want to go to San Diego, that you wanted to come to New York to be a member of the football giants. And mind you, those two quarterbacks have won multiple Super Bowls in their destinations. When John Elway went to Denver, and it took him a while to get there, but he did get his back-to-back before he went off into the sunset. And Eli Manning, as we all know, the two Super Bowl victories and MVPs over the New England Patriots. But if you're Trevor Lawrence, and even though it may not look good, and you may look at how this franchise has performed over the years and their ownership and their questionable GM who is right now incomplete as far as what he's done in the National Football League and the coach we know he has to be jettisoned. Forget about tomorrow. He needed to be jettisoned last year. But as I said, hopefully the Johnsons, for whatever the reason, wake up from this nightmare and say, kid, we're giving you the keys to the castle. This is what we're going to do. We're going to give you the right coach. We're going to give you the right offensive coordinator. It's going to take some time. But here's Mr. Joe Willie Namath with the shades and the fur coat coming in with his Super Bowl ring. Granted that he has to probably shine it a few times and dust it off a little bit. But if you bring him in day one and let Joe Willie to tell you, kid, you win here, you're set for life. Maybe that will be the key for Trevor Lawrence being a New York Jet. Because if he doesn't want anything to do with the Jet franchise, if he doesn't want anything to do with the organization, and you don't do your due diligence to do whatever it takes to bring this kid and be part of your fabric and part of your organization and the face of your franchise, sorry, Sam Donald. I'm sure he needs to change the scenery and go elsewhere, but Trevor Lawrence is going to be your guy. You have to do whatever it takes. And not just with little perks and a red carpet and show him how much you care. No, you got to show him we're about winning. And we may not have been about winning for the last 50-some-odd years, but now this is the way the new regime begins. And we want you to be the face of it. If the Jet organization somehow, someway does that, then maybe Trevor Lawrence will be a New York Jet sometime in April next year. And as far as this situation with COVID, now I didn't really look into it. How negligent he was? Was he at a party? Was he somewhere he shouldn't have been? What does this mean for Clemson moving forward? Now, they barely had to skate by the other day against Boston College. And right now, a lot of people think that he's probably not even going to be a Heisman Trophy favorite, which I'm sure he doesn't really care about. He probably just wants to get back, being healthy, get back on the team, get back with his teammates to produce and get themselves in position to get back to a national title. But the... COVID situation, again, these are young kids. How can you police it? It's tough to know that if you're a guy of his stature in college football, which right now he is the face of college football when you think about it. I understand you can look at Justin Fields and a couple other players for that matter. But with him and for him to get the virus now, and chances are he's not going to play against Notre Dame next week, which it sure looks like it's going to be, and we'll get into that in a minute. But if you're the Jets or any other organization, you look at that, I mean, what could you say? You just interview him. It could happen to anybody. 
We know how much of a controversy coronavirus has been with certain regions of this country and beliefs and hoaxes or whatever, and I'm not going to get into all that. But the bottom line is, is that you wonder what kind of effect that this could have for the present moment right now, whether or not they do get to a national title game, or even if they do lose to Notre Dame, and that would be tough because Notre Dame, as we all know, is within the top four teams in the country. And if they do happen to lose to Notre Dame, what does that mean for Clemson in their quest to get back to the playoff to play for a national title? Now, we'll see what happens come Saturday. As we all know, they did not play well there on Saturday, but just based on their pedigree and what they've done over the last few years was just enough to that, for them to beat Boston College. But it is puzzling to know that the one guy who college football can't really afford to have go down, even if it is for just two weeks, and especially with this game coming up, because this would have been a game for Notre Dame that if Lawrence was in the lineup, they probably would not win. But now they have a good, if not better shot at winning, and rightfully so, against the Tigers. And even though it will probably come with an asterisk if they do win, but it doesn't matter. They will still beat the number one team overall if they can do that this coming Saturday. Now, if you're the Michigan Wolverines, I mean, what do you say? You can't lose in that game to Michigan State. And Michigan State pretty much, I'm not going to say they had their way with them. It was close. It was 2017. But Michigan State dictated the tempo of that game pretty much from the start. And if you're Jim Harbaugh, what can you say? When you look at that game, you have to say to yourself, how am I going to get over the hump? How am I going to get past Ohio State, which beat up on Penn State the other night, and we don't have to worry about Penn State trying to make it to the Final Four this year. But we've said this time and time again with Harbaugh over the years. We know he can't beat Ohio State. And now having this loss to his in-state rivals, it just makes you take your cap off and slam it to the ground because if you're a fan of the Blue and Maze, what more could go wrong for you to try to get to the heights of a national title? It just seems to continue to slip away year after year after year after year. And Michigan, I'm sure, may be heard from one more time. Who knows what they're going to do against Ohio State. That game is down the road. But again, what more can you say if you're a Harbaugh and company? A lot of people think that maybe his next stop is to go back to the NFL because he's just not cutting it in Michigan. And it would be wise. He'll make a ton of money if he goes back to the NFL. I'm sure they'll give him everything he's ever wanted. Now, we know we don't want to have a coach that has also the title of player personnel overall because that could also be just a mess especially in this day and age and even though Harbaugh who did win in San Francisco we understand didn't win the Super Bowl but did make it to three state NFC title games and had that tough loss against the Ravens in Super Bowl 48 but as we know right now or Super Bowl 47 excuse me but as we know right now it doesn't seem that the Jim Harbaugh marriage to his alma mater in Michigan is going to last that much longer So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. Other games of note, you had another big loss in college football there where number six, Oklahoma State loses to Texas and ended up losing in overtime where Texas fought hard, fought long, back and forth, pretty much tooth and nail throughout the game. But uh, Texas does win in overtime where Sam Erlinger had the touchdown pass to Joshua Moore. And if you're Oklahoma State who are looking to see if they could slowly but surely creep up in the standings 
by a loss from one of the teams ahead of them, which obviously we did not see over the weekend where Alabama just steamrolled Mississippi State. And we know Notre Dame also won as well. But with the Cowboys, now you're going to look at them as being far down the rung and not being able to compete for a title where you look at some of the other teams like Cincinnati and BYU. And it's going to be tricky, people, unless Clemson gets slaughtered in the game against Notre Dame and how some of these other teams may fare here over the next few weeks. You know, Georgia just eked out a game against Kentucky. We know about Notre Dame. They pounded on Georgia Tech. But it looks like these top four, barring anything, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, barring just some major upsets and even with one loss, it looks like it's not they're not going to be able to drop out of the top four. But for some of these other teams, like I mentioned, whether it's the Cincinnati's of the world, the Texas A&M's, the BYU's, uh, even Florida for that matter, it's going to take a Herculean effort on their part and also for the college football schedule to fall on their side in order for them to be anywhere close to the top four. But with next week's schedule, as we take a look, now the Clemson-Notre Dame game, as I said, the main thing here, even if Clemson loses, if they lose a close game, I think they're going to be fine as far as the polls are concerned. And I think they'll still be in the top four even if they lose. Now, it just depends on how bad they lose. I mean, if they get blown out 38-10, what does that do as far as the FBS is concerned, as far as the rankings? That remains to be seen. But if they lose a close game, or even if they lose a game where maybe Notre Dame pretty much had the game in control, Clemson made a late run, but ended up losing within a score, I don't see that killing Clemson's chances of making it back to the playoff. And as we see here, Michigan and Indiana, that's an interesting game for Indiana. They did beat Rutgers the other day. And remember, they beat Penn State earlier, uh, the week earlier. So let's see what Indiana could do considering Michigan and what happened with them on Saturday. Uh, that could be an intriguing game. Not to say Indiana is going to make it up to the top four, but they can make it into the top ten with a victory here, you would think. So we'll certainly keep our fingers on the pulse for that. You have Florida and Georgia. That's going to be your big SEC game. So let's see where Georgia will stand after that game as they'll host the Gators. As far as any other games with intrigue, you don't really have anything other than the aforementioned Clemson, Notre Dame. Uh, If you want to get crazy about the Indiana-Michigan game, uh, nothing else really to jump up and down. Alabama, I believe, has a bye they're not playing. Well, the Florida-Georgia game, of course, that's a game that certainly has postseason implications. And uh, that's pretty much what you'll have there in college football. Now, to turn our attention to baseball, a lot of things happening in baseball over the past week, and I'm only going to briefly touch on the World Series. If you didn't get my breakdown or assessment, go to my Instagram page, the J Reels Podcast. I posted a six-minute video about everything that happened in Game 6, even Justin Turner to a certain extent. So I'm not going to talk about something that happened six days ago. We know that it was the worst move how I called it, the worst move by a manager or a head coach since Pete Carroll in the Super Bowl in a big spot was Kevin Cash pulling Blake Snell. I could talk about analytics until I'm blue in the face, but it's just sad to see how managers just are super honorable to the analytics and the contradiction in this series. Because when you look at Tyler Glasnow in game one who threw 112 pitches and walked the first two guys, I believe, in the sixth inning and how he just let him pitch, that was unraised like 
And for them to get the ball from Blake Snell at 72 pitches, uh, it just makes you, it just boggles your mind. So the only thing I could only hope from the other 29 GMs that watch this game, that they have to go by the eye test and go by the gut and not by the numbers and not by the computers that compute all this sabermetric garbage that does not play the game, let the players play, and that's it. Bottom line, case closed. As far as Justin Turner is concerned, I know that him being pulled from the game, I believe in the sixth inning or the seventh inning, whatever inning it was, and then had to sit on the bench or I guess had to be in the locker room toward the end of the game. And then once the Dodgers won, he bypassed security, made it onto the field with a mask, then pulled the mask down. And we all know and saw what happened there. But if you're wondering why was he on the field to begin with at the start of the game, if they had a positive test, I believe that morning, his test from Monday came back inconclusive. So because it was a false positive test, they're allowed, Major League Baseball it is, to have players play on that day if it's inconclusive. Unlike the NFL and I would think the NBA and NHL when they had their postseasons go on. So for baseball, they said, no, we could go ahead and play, not a problem. And then that morning's test came back later that evening to the point where it was positive. They had to pull Turner from the game. And so if you're wondering why was he even starting the game if he had COVID, well, that explains it. And then on top of that, for him to just bypass security, and I get a 1,000%. He's been on this team for several years, had suffered plenty of heartbreak with all the brutal playoff losses over the years, and then now he finally got to the mountaintop. He was finally a World Series champion. He wanted to celebrate with his teammates. And even based on what you saw, what you heard, whether it was Dave Roberts, I wanted them on the field. Same for Mookie Betts, et cetera, down the list. But there should have been proper judgment on Turner to where, okay, go out with a mask. Even go out with a mask and a shield. Okay, you could still celebrate. I wouldn't have had a problem with that. But by him pulling down the mask, taking it off, and exposing himself to his teammates. Granted, they were outdoors. And I understand maybe the roof was covered that night. But you're still around team personnel. You're still around family, friends, etc. And granted, it's been a week later, just about, and based on the news, we haven't heard anybody from the Dodgers or from family, friends, etc. come down with the virus. So then a lot of people could think, going back to the hoax theory, well, maybe some of this hasn't been put out in the paper. Maybe there's disclaimers out there. You don't know that. So to say that, well, hey, it's been a week and nobody's been infected, we don't know that. Because I would think, and you never know with these type of organizations, who knows? Maybe they want to keep it on the wraps. Maybe they're telling people, let's not put this out there. Obviously, there was a bad optic. If anybody gets ill, it's going to be on the Dodgers bill. It doesn't matter. We'll take care of it, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. But for people to jump to conclusions right away and say that, oh, well, nobody's gotten COVID yet, we don't know that. So for Turner to put his family at risk, his teammates at risk, personnel, et cetera, was just selfish on his part. So even if he came out, like I said, in a hazmat suit, People will understand why. So for him to just jump out there, all right, had the mask on, and we know he has the big beard and everything, he should have came out with the just the whole regalia to keep himself protected from other people. If he would have done that, I wouldn't have had a problem. But because he did that, it's like, come on. And I'm not trying to make myself out to be the coronavirus police by any stretch, but have a little bit of foresight and awareness to think that, well, hey, if I got this and I'm going to go celebrate, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Not just jump out there with one flimsy mask and then throw it aside 
when you're in the middle of this celebration. Now, you had a couple of managerial hirings in baseball where one with the White Sox and Tony La Russa comes full circle with him. If you remember, he was the manager of the White Sox there in the early to mid-80s. Won an AL West division in 83 where they lost to the eventual World Series champion, the Baltimore Orioles, back in 83. And now you would think this will be his final stop to try to get the White Sox another championship. Remember, they won 15 years ago and ended their drought of 80-some-odd years as a member of the White Sox. But I think it's a very good hire. He's a guy that you may wonder or even think has the game passed him by. He is 76 years old, but he has stayed connected with the game. He is a guy that is bilingual with a lot of Latin players on the team. He could certainly communicate with them and... Right, how he's going to handle certain situations when it comes to between the white lines. We're going to have to wait till next year, but I thought that was a great hire. So if you're Jerry Reinsdorf, why not bring back the guy that you once hired many moons ago and has three World Series rings in his back pocket? So let's see what that does for a White Sox team that has a ton of talent and will look to get to the next level after making it to the postseason this year. And then A.J. Hinch, the former Houston Astro manager, gets hired by the Detroit Tigers. Now, a lot of people are probably wondering, oh, he doesn't deserve to come back. Why is he back so soon? So on and so forth. Remember, he did have a one-year suspension, which was over the night of the World Series. And they didn't waste any time in bringing Hinch in. Hinch is another guy with the analytics. And he needs to have the talent, too, because as we all know, despite cheating or not, they still have plenty of talent in that dugout. For the Astros and the Tigers, who has an aging star in their team in Miguel Cabrera. But they have pitching that's coming up the ranks, including their number one pick from a few years ago, Mize. We'll see how he pans out. So the Tigers are trying to see if they can get themselves back to respectability by bringing in a guy like A.J. Hinch. So, And I thought it was a very good move by them. They don't want to get a retread. I know they did that with Ron Gardenhire, and he, uh, of course, retired due to his health. So now you bring in Hinch, who, right, you could say he is a retread, but considering the circumstances of everything that happened with the Astros, he jumps back on the beam, and let's see what he does there in Detroit. Now with the Red Sox, you wonder if Heim Bloom, the GM, VP of Baseball Operations for the Red Sox, will he be open to bringing back Alex Cora? Because there were some reports last week where maybe it was John Henry, Tom Werner was in contact with Cora about bringing him back. Now that could be a little bit of a tug of war where if the owners want Cora back and that means Hein Bloom is going to have to sit still and work with a guy who won a World Series there in 2018, had to sit out a year due to the suspension for his partaking in the Astros sign-stealing scandal. And here we are at a point where the Red Sox are bringing back Chris Sale, Eduardo Rodriguez, J.D. Martinez is opting into his contract. So Bloom may have to sit on his hands with this particular decision because if he's going to be overruled, you wonder what that's going to be like for Bloom and the relationship that he's going to have with Cora and even the front office for that matter. So that's something to keep an eye on. And then let's get right to it. It's official 26 to 4 vote. Steve Cohen is now the owner of the New York Mets, 95%, where the Wilpons have 5%, so that means 0%, if you ask me. Let's see what happens here. I know that they signed a couple of pitchers, Nick Tropiano and Jacob Barnes, to their roster. Tropiano's a local guy. He actually went to high school in West Islip. But they're going to have to make some bigger moves than that. I know that the Indians declined 
on a player option for Brad Hand, the left-handed reliever. If I'm Steve Cohen, Sandy Olson right now, you get out there and sign this guy. I'm not making Brad Hand out to be 1984 AL MVP and World Series hero Willie Hernandez. But they need better arms than Nick Trapiano and Jacob Barnes. That's all there is to it. And Dylan Batances is coming back on his deal. And Batances, as we all know, did not have a good year in his first year as a Met. So whatever the Mets need to do right now, it begins. And he even posted that on Twitter. He wanted to hear from the fans. So Steve Cohen, let's get cracking. And let's try to fortify this team for a long, deep postseason run. And hopefully it culminates in a World Series title. And you have a lot of players in baseball that right now are in the middle of free agency due to these team buyouts. Whether your name is John Lester, Chris Archer, Charlie Morton, and those are just the pitchers. We know about the some of the free agents highlighted by George Springer, and he's a guy that I think I'd rather give him a lot of money in less years. I think he's 31 or will turn 31 before spring training next year. And I know he's still in his prime, but I'd rather give him four or five years at 100-some-odd million than to give him a seven, eight-year deal. And I know Steve Cohen's got all the bucks. I know that money's not going to be an object. We understand all that. But if Springer was 26-27, different story. But he's 31, and he's a winning player, and he's a clutch postseason player, and he's a center fielder, which will shore up that outfield in the worst way. But still, I don't know if I'm willing to dole out a seven-year contract for him. I don't think so. But with Marcus Stroman, they actually gave him a qualifying offer, which was something that the previous regime would never do. So let's see if Stroman bites on that. But you got some big names out there, and I understand long resumes, good resumes, but maybe even long in the tooth. So baseball will start to crank up a little bit. I don't know when the awards are going to be released, and who cares about the awards, really, when you think about it. Because MVP, Cy Young, Rookie of the Year, 60 games. I'm not going to go crazy about that. So you would think that's going to be in the coming weeks. And then the free agency period, I don't know when that's going to be. You would think it's probably going to be sometime toward the end of the month. The winter meetings usually are in December. Maybe it's the week before that. I don't know. I have to check the calendar. But we will always see what's going on there with baseball and the free agents and the wheeling and dealing of an offseason. So we got that to uh, chew on here in the weeks to come. All right, let me turn my attention to the NBA before we uh, bid adieu here. It's been reported that due to a January start that the league is going to lose $1 billion because of it. Uh, What could they do? They didn't have their NBA final conclude until the middle of October. There's no way you're going to start a season just a month later or even two months later. And right now, as much as they're trying to push for a pre-Christmas start, it doesn't look like that may take place or the likelihood of that jumping off will happen. And it's tough sledding for these leagues, whether you're the NBA and the NHL, where a lot of the revenue is going to come from the gate attendance, just the whole in-game experience with concessions, etc. That now, if you're the NBA, what do you do? You can't have another bubble scenario because the players who had to deal with it for the most part, where you're looking at the Lakers in heat, for 90 some odd days, you can't put these guys in a bubble for four, five, six months at a time. They're going to have to play these games out in more likely empty arenas. Even if you put 
a few thousand in there. You have to have them so spread out because you're indoors and enclosed. That's just a tremendous risk. Uh, what can you say? It's just the world we live in right now where there doesn't seem to be a vaccine or a treatment in sight. And yes, you can listen to the news and what's gone on with some of the remedies and some of the pharmaceuticals that are out there that may deem to be a, of a treatment, but it's still inconclusive on whether or not it's good long-term or even for the short term for that matter, although it may be positive with some parts, uh, some people that may have taken it, but still overall you can't put your 100% trust in that. So for the league, which will continue to monitor, if it does start in January, let's say around Martin Luther King Day, there are going to be $1 billion in the hole to start, and there really isn't anything I can do about it. I mean, what could you say? Now as far as some of the off the court stuff speaking of GMs or VP of operations having to deal with ownership as I talked about with Hein Bloom and the Red Sox the Sixers hired Daryl Morey to be their GM and considering that they hired Doc Rivers before bringing in Morey you wonder what kind of relationship those two are going to have now I'm sure they probably have a relationship in the NBA circles as Austin Rivers was a player there for the Rockets, I believe he's still on the, on the Rockets. I should know that, but and I'm sure he's been in contact with Morey over the years for whatever the reason. Maybe not just for the son, but anything that's going on throughout the league. As we know, Doc is very influential with what he has to say when it comes to the association. But knowing that Doc was there first, and then Morey, will there be a little bit of friction between, let's say, Doc? And Morey or even Morey in the front office I don't think that would be the case You would think they'll work hand in hand And now the next step is with Morey here Does he pull the trigger on a big deal To either let go of Joel Embiid Or Ben Simmons And because of the relationship between Daryl Morey and James Harden There's been a lot of scuttlebutt about maybe Harden coming to Philadelphia Now for who would it be Either Embiid or Simmons You figure one of those two would have to go But if I'm Doc Rivers, this is where you have to be aligned with the GM because you don't want this to be Houston Northeast. You don't want it to be where you're going to chuck 50-63s a game. I get it. That's how the league is. That's what the game predicates right now. It's all about perimeter shooting, three-point shooting. We get that. I understand. But that's where the philosophies come in where Daryl Morey had this particular philosophy in Houston for so many years. And then we know Doc Rivers is more of a defensive-minded coach. And yes, he has adapted over the years. But this is where it gets a little bit interesting and wonder how this is all going to come about between the GM and coach. Just something to put in the back of your head here. I'm sure everything will be fine from the start, but as time goes on and the way the team's constructed, just something to keep in the back of your mind there just in case if down the road something festers or something pops up between both Maury and Rivers. And speaking of the Houston Rockets, they hired Steven Silas to be their head coach. He was an assistant, the son of Paul Silas, who's been obviously a longtime NBA player and coach going way back into NBA yesteryear. So Silas will get an opportunity to coach Harden and Westbrook. And who knows if they're going to be done there as far as maybe making some moves, as I talked about with Maury now being in Philadelphia. And I'm sure that's going to be a hot take. And maybe Westbrook possibly being dangled for a trade. Possibly the Knicks could be one. A lot of this stuff, I'm sure, is going to bubble from the surface 
in the coming days, especially as we get towards free agency in the NBA. All these things to keep in mind of with an NBA season right now, up in the air, when it's going to start, etc. But we have these storylines that will be percolating from here throughout and just something to keep in mind as, again, what sports do we have to watch here? We don't have anything. We have to go based on rumors, based on possible scenarios, players being traded, etc. So I'm just putting this all on your mental back burner of sports fans. So just keep all that in mind as we uh, continue to march on here in this uh, calendar of 2020. And then one last extension when it comes to the Houston Rockets. Mike D'Antoni is now an assistant under Steve Nash in Brooklyn. And we all know Steve Nash really flourished in that system with the Phoenix Suns back in the mid-2000s. And interestingly enough, we talked about it weeks ago, the whole Kyrie, KD comments about, oh, one day I could be the coach, KD will be a coach one day. Now you're going to have D'Antoni, who's been a longtime head coach, under Steve Nash, who is dipping his toe into the coaching waters as far as basketball is concerned. And you got to wonder how all this is going to meld into the pot of the Brooklyn Nets stew. And once again, let's see if this is all going to be one big giant feast where everybody's going to enjoy the fruits of their labor and the fruits of this stew. Or is it just going to be a mess Is it just going to be burnt? Is it going to be so distasteful that they're going to have to scrap not only just the ingredients and the pots and pans, but maybe deconstruct the whole kitchen and have to rebuild it? That also remains to be seen here as we'll pay attention to that once we get closer to an NBA season. All right, now let me get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week are the Arizona Coyotes. Why, you may ask? Because... They drafted a kid in the fourth round by the name of Mitchell Miller, and they recently renounced his rights after discovering his history of assault, racism, and bullying of an African-American student in high school who has developmental disabilities, and it actually came out in a recent newspaper feature out in the desert or out in where this kid grew up. I believe it was in Ohio. So it came to light during this newspaper spotlight investigation and for the coyotes at first they knew about the history of bullying which they didn't condone and they certainly weren't in favor of but they figured okay he was a teenager we let that slide but when they realized the victim and what he had as far as his disability is concerned and that he was african-american they cut ties he is now a free agent so kudos to you arizona coyotes you're my hero of the week And my zero of the week is Toronto Raptor rookie Terrence Davis for assaulting a woman in an apartment here on the Upper East Side of Manhattan last week. And the report stated that not only they got into this disagreement with this woman, but he hit her in the face to the point where the kid, I believe she had her son, which was standing next to her, not only had to witness this and not knowing how old the kid is, but he actually fell in the process of being struck by Terrence Davis So no matter how you cut it, whether he's innocent, guilty, who knows? Obviously, it's not for me to say, but if that report is true and with everything that's going on in the world with assault towards women and Me Too, et cetera, so on and so forth, Terrence Davis, my guy, you are my zero of the week. So that'll do it for episode 162 here of the J-Reels podcast. I appreciate you all for listening to whether it's your first time or 
10th time, 100th time, 162nd time, I greatly appreciate you all and I'm greatly thankful for you taking the time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports. So if you haven't done so already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast with all the others that are out there. And we all know there are countless. And just trying to move up the rankings little by little as an independent outfit here in New York City who loves to schmooze about everything that's happening in sports. If you could please do so on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, Amazon Music. Just go ahead, hit the subscribe button. It'll go right to your phone, tablet, device, whatever it is. And in turn, it's going to increase the visibility of this podcast so I could generate some interest with some people outside who aren't familiar with the J-Reels podcast, whether that's the former or current athlete, the studio host, the broadcaster, sports writer, blogger, whomever it may be, so I could get them on here to share their experiences for you guys. I would sincerely appreciate if you could do that. If you want to hit me up, send me an email, a DM on any of my social media accounts, you could do so at the following, J Reels or the J Reels Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, J Reels 1, just a number, on Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. If you want to shoot me an email, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please send me all the questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'm more than open and ready and willing to answer back on whatever it is that's on your mind. And then lastly, if you want to support this podcast as far as the production of it, everything that goes in toward the website, the marketing, advertising, I'm planning to expand here, people. But if you want to do that, go to www.patreon. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Anything that you'd love to contribute, like to contribute, want to contribute, no matter what it is, I understand it's tough sledding this day and age with corona and being out of work. But whatever you'd like to put forth toward my endeavor to produce not only quality content, but of informative, entertaining, credible, knowledgeable, the whole nine, I would sincerely appreciate it. Because like I said, whether it's your first time or 162nd time, you know that this is all I love to talk about. Anything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, the world of the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, j Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. Also, if you haven't done so already, go out and vote. Tomorrow's the final day, election day. I don't care which side you're on. Just make the right choice and put your ballot in because I don't want to hear any gripes about people who do not vote or feel like, ah, who cares? I don't have a say, whatever. You do have a say, so make sure you go out and do that tomorrow as election day, the biggest one this country has ever experienced, is on deck, ready to go. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.